The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. Hello and welcome to The Dark Word. I am your host, Philip Fricasi. And as usual, I'm very excited for today's guest, especially excited to have Mr. Stephen Graham Jones on the show today to talk about writing and publishing and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, Stephen is the New York Times bestselling author of nearly 30 novels and story collections. There's some novellas and comic books in there as well. Most recent are The Only Good Indians and My Heart is a Chainsaw. Up next is Don't Fear the Reaper. Stephen lives and teaches in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Stephen, how are you, man? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I have a lot I want to get to and a limited amount of time to do it. So I'm just going to kick it right off. I, I always like to start these conversations. I think you might have listened to a couple episodes by get, talking about kind of like early experiences. And you've been writing for 20 years and my research has shown me, I think your first publication was Demon Theory. Um, I'm sure you published some stories before that, but can you tell the people who might be listening, writers and whatever, what your first publishing experience was and what were some things that you took from that? What were some lessons that you took from that first experience? Yeah, that, that's probably 1995, a story called Paleogenesis circa 1970 that came out in Black Warrior Review and I got $150 for it. That's not bad. No, that was all right, man. And um, <laughs> Black Warrior is a good place to be, too. And I like that story a lot as well. Or I used to. I haven't read it for, you know, 25 years. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, it was weird. I was living in an apartment in Denton, Texas with my wife at the time, new wife. And new wife, old girlfriend, you know, we've been together a while. And I got a call from this editor at Black Warrior. And he said, hey, man, I, I like the story. I want to pick it up. And um, and I kept on insisting that he was one of my friends from grad school who was pulling a prank on me because I couldn't imagine that this was actually a, somebody wanting to pick up my fiction. And he finally convinced me that it was real. And so I remember I, this was landline days. I distinctly remember hanging that phone up and holding it there, you know, on the cradle and thinking, this is where it starts. You know, I'm, 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 I'm getting published in a real place. I'm getting a check for publishing. And I thought this is, you know, this is where the, this is, a, this is the first gate. And I was still holding that phone and it rang again. And I picked that phone up and it was, um, the emergency room from back home where I grew up in Texas telling me my mother had just gotten into a head on collision right in front of the emergency room. They just wheeled her straight from the wreck into the emergency room on a gurney. And, um, and it was so weird to get those two pieces of information right in the same phone call almost, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's immediate perspective, right? I've had similar experience, nothing like that, but I have had similar experiences where you're very excited about maybe like a movie option or it's like, Oh my God. And then like something horrible happened in my personal life. And I was like, I don't even, yeah. I don't even care about it. But, and then when you, oh, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry that happened by the oh, way. That she's all right. It's, it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. Okay, good, good. Um, and then how did that, how did that snowball into what eventually became 
your first novel, Demon Theory? Um, my first novel is actually The Fast Red Road. It came out in 2000. Oh, okay. It was my dissertation at Florida State University. And I guess the way that that story snowballed was that I just kept getting publications. You know, what happened was the cohort I came to get my master's with, um, there were probably eight or 10 of us. And man, we got to school and we were all like the nematodes in SpongeBob. We're just chomping at the bit. We're like, when can we submit? When can we <laughs> submit? We're the next, you know, whoever. And, um, right. And, and the professors would, would say, y'all calm down, calm down. We'll tell you when you're ready to submit. And I was like, you know, screw that. So I just started submitting immediately and started getting published immediately. And I just kept getting published mm-hmm. all through grad school. And yeah, then for my dissertation, I did the the novel, which that's a big jump. Uh, stories are really no preparation for writing a novel. You know, right. stories, they'll cap out at 30 pages or, you know, at the tops, it seems like. Whereas a novel is a completely different beast. And I had no idea how to do it. And writing that first novel because I didn't know how to do it. Every time I hit a wall, like to me, writing a novel is you run for 10 pages, 12 pages and you hit a wall and you don't know what to do. And you have to like cast around and, you know, do whatever you have to do to get those next 10 or 12 pages. But I was on fast deadline. I didn't have time to be sad that I didn't know what came next. And so every time I hit that wall, I just reached in my head and pulled out a piece of my life and put on the page and changed the names. And I got through that 350 page novel like that. And the trick was that that kind of conditioned me to, um, always write novels like that so all of my novels that's what i do I, I instead of waiting around for what comes next i just put a piece of my life down and sneak it in and change the names yeah well that's interesting because that was going to be my follow-up is uh, yeah has your process changed over the last couple decades is it that i hate that panther plotter question but like when you're writing novels now do you do you do it differently or is it still just kind of see to your pants kind of thing it's the ones that work or see to my pants i've you know early in my publishing career um, this was my second or third book. I had to, I didn't have any weight to throw around in the publishing industry. And I had to sign a contract for a thriller novel that was, um, ch- had chapter approval on it, which meant that every chapter I wrote, I had to give it to the editor and he would, you know, mark it up and tell me not to do this, to do this instead. And then I, then I got to write the next chapter and weird, which is, a, that's a terrible way to write a novel. Yeah. Know? I can't but, even imagine that. Yeah. But, and so I've, I mean, I've done that once and I've, I've, tried to try to work off an outline i'm terrible at working off an outline but it's always seat of the pants for me like right now i like the the third chainsaw book is due at the end of summer and i don't have any idea what it's going to be called i don't know what's going to go down in it <laughs> oh i just God. know that it, we're back in proof rock and we're and i'm writing another novel right now so i got to finish that one before i can start this other book yeah. is that i mean is that terrifying knowing that you're under contract for a, a novel where you know now you're a New York Times bestselling writer. I'm sure they're paying you okay. Like, is that, or are you just like, no, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing? Yeah, I just keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I'm, you know, I was, I watched that, or I haven't watched it all yet. I've watched like the first two parts of that Beatles documentary that Get Back. There's a part in part one where John Lennon is just talking to Paul McCartney, I think it is, just, you know, between songs, between takes, whatever. And, and Paul McCartney's like worried that they're not going to be ready in time. And John Lennon tells him, like when my back's against the wall, that's when you'll see me at my best, you know? And I'm, I really, that really resonated with me because I'm not saying that I only work under a deadline. I, I kind of work whenever it doesn't matter, but, um, I've never failed to come up with the thing I need to come up with, you know? So I'm not that worried. I'm, I am worried that it won't be as, I want it to be of the same caliber that I think that Reaper and Chainsaw are at, but um, you never, you never can really, you can just do your best and hope it's good enough, you know? Yeah. Now when you're not working under deadline, I know this probably it's probably been a while since you haven't been under deadline, but when you know during maybe some late years when maybe you didn't have a deadline, how did you give yourself the motivation to work on something like like a novel? 
well, you know, this, this novel I'm writing right now is not under contract. I have not sold it yet. And so it's, I'm still doing that. You know, I, I didn't even mean to do it. What happened was I was on a plane to Dubai and I had a new iPad with a new keyboard and I love to play on new toys. And I thought, I'm just going right. to, I'm going to see if this keyboard works for an hour. And so I sat down, I read a chapter and just screwing around, like not going anywhere, just seeing if the keyboard worked. And and, but then I kind of liked it. So right now it's at 55,000 words and it'll probably be at 70 or 75 here in a couple of weeks and it'll hopefully get done so I can jump into that third, third chainsaw book. But I've never, I've never had to like trick myself with, I don't know, exercises or schedules or anything right. like that to write. Cause I, I'm just like, like, I feel like there's always bungee cords pulling me to the keyboard. Like that, that's the only place I really want to be. Cause when I'm at the keyboard, I can hide from responsibility and I just don't like responsibility whatsoever. You know, I don't like mowing the grass. I don't like paying the bills. I don't like going to meetings. I don't like doing phone calls, all that stuff. But if I'm at the keep, it's like, I've got a little invisible shell around me and nobody can touch me and I get to hide. Uh, that's amazing. So let's talk about some of the early books. And then I want to talk to you about some more about your writings, uh, the way you, the way you work for about, I would guess from like 2000 then, when you did your dissertation to about 2015, give or take, you were publishing a lot with, you know, quote unquote, independent publishers. And, and then I think when Mongrels came out, correct, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here. I believe that was like your first sort of quote unquote, big five or mainstream publisher. What were some things that you learned in that process of publishing all those books that you did with some of those indie publishers? Were there anything, were there any lessons that you took that would be applicable to maybe other writers who are, you know, going through that process of, uh, you know, or going through that, that period of publishing? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. And, you know, actually early in my career, I did flirt with um, New York publishers. There was an upstart place called Rugged Land that had a, mm -hmm. they had just an immense amount of capital and they were specializing in books that could go into Hollywood quite easily. And, mm -hmm. and they, they were, they were, they were a player for about two or three years. Then they went away. Um, maybe because I wasn't a big enough seller, but I wasn't their only thing they were gambling on. Of course they had, they had lots of big writers, but um, yeah, Mongrels were William Morrow. And before William Morrow, I'd been with a whole lot of, um, indie presses, you know, um, Lazy Fascist, um, Broken River, FC2, Zank. Zank is kind of mid-list, mid I guess it's called. And yeah. um, Chiasmus. I, I don't know. I've been with so many publishers. But the reason I bounced around from publisher to publisher, um, it was that I never wanted to write the same book twice. I was never interested in being in the same genre twice even. And the trick is, if you have one book with a the publisher, they're like, hey, give us another one like that with the names changed. But right. I never wanted to do that. So I would just always um, bounce and go to the next place, the next place, the next place. And finally, with Mongrels, I was able to like, wed together a lot of the different things I've been doing into one book, which felt whole in a way. It felt like it knitted me back together. And I've just been sticking with that ever since with doing that kind of knitting together various ways of telling a story and different contents and stuff. But as for indie versus commercial, to me, the big difference is, um, well, there's two big differences. The commercial presses have distribution and marketing, you know, and right. indie presses have to really struggle to get that stuff. But with indie presses, I would probably have more like I could do weirder things, if that makes sense. Like sure. the long trial of Nolan Dugatti, which came out in 2007, possibly somewhere around there. It was an, that book was initially 
and a font made from my handwriting, you know, and that's nothing, that's something you could never do from with a publisher. Um, it, it, that font ended up blowing up. So we had to resort to a different kind of font, but I did that with the bird is gone back in 2003. Every chapter is in a different font, I believe in these wild, ridiculous things. I mean, I'm not using like wingdings or anything, but you know, just um, like courier and stuff, but right. those are games that you really don't get to play on the commercial scene. I don't think. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Cause I was talking to Paul Tremblay, who I know is a, a mutual friend and and I was doing some research on his early publishing and he has this book and I ordered it. I ordered it off Amazon and it's this early, I want to say it's a novella, but it's an early book that he wrote. And he literally has passages in the book where you have to use a yellow highlighter to highlight the text in order to see what he's written in the book. Have you, yeah. are you, are you aware of this book? I do remember that. That's not a Harlequin on the train, Harlequin in the train, is it? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. Yeah. I think I blurred Harlequin back when, and he does a really cool thing with chapter numbering in that novel too. Something I've never seen done since. I like it a lot. Yeah. But he's not to get off on a Paul Trimble thing, but he's, and even uh, with his, I'm actually pretty impressed that even with Willie Morrow, they still do some pretty creative stuff with his copy. Like Paul does pretty interesting, you know, he doesn't go hot full house of leaves, but he, he does some experimental stuff. Oh yeah. For sure. Yeah. As far as how we lay stuff out. So I want to talk about Mongrels for a second because Mongrels is interesting because I remember, and always feel free to correct me, I'll, I pretty much remember Mongrels as a short story. And then I think a couple of years later, or give or take, you had expanded on that short story for the novel. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, my friend Jesse Bolton was editing an anthology of stories called Letters to Lovecraft. And he hit me up mm -hmm. in, I don't know, 2013. I, think, I guess it was 2013. Yeah. And he said, hey, man, can you write a, a story that comes out of um, Lovecraft's, what's a, what's a big essay he has, like supernatural horror fiction or something? Yeah, I think um, that's it. Yeah. 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 And um, Or writing supernatural horror or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And I had that on my Kindle at the time. And so while I was talking to Jesse, I opened up my Kindle and I did a search in that thing for the word werewolves. And there was one instance of the word werewolf. And I thought, I, and so I told Jesse, I said, you bet I can do that because it had werewolves. I could write a werewolf story and I, always, I can always write a werewolf story. And, and then I forgot that I told him yes until he called me up like on a Tuesday and he said, Hey man, that story's due tomorrow. Just making sure you're going to give me something. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I probably will. And so right. I had been down to Monument, Colorado, not Monument, to Manitou Springs, Colorado. And I had this big jug of, um, chocolate covered sunflower seeds. And so I just ate that whole jug and got all jittery and wrote the first, I wrote Doc's story. That's what it was called back then. And the first chapter of Mongrels and gave it to Jesse the next day. Um, and then I kind of let, I, just, I thought, well, that was one story. I'm, I can always write a story in the afternoon. That's not a big deal. But then a few months later, I found myself writing a lot more werewolf stories and I mixed in Doc's story with it. And I thought, you know, if I name these characters the same names, this is a novel. So I just mix them all together. Yeah, that's interesting. And I I think there's a lot of, um, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I know that happens. Oh, I can, actually I can. I, um, uh, the Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. I'm going yeah. by memory. Yeah, like that was a short story that he expanded yeah. into a novel and it became a huge hit and was a movie and everything else. So that's an interesting, I guess for writers listening, that's an interesting, you know, if you have some short stories that you've, had success with or haven't had publishing success with, you know, and you're looking for novel ideas. There's nothing wrong with farming your own stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I actually farmed a couple of my old screenplays that never got written and I made them into novels and, and I've sold them, you know? Wonderful. That's wonderful, man. Yeah. And I mean, Ender's Game comes from that same kind of thing. And I guess, um, right. I think, I think Cannibal for Leibowitz might as well, you know? Yeah. So that's really, that's an interesting, and bef uh, before I get into the rest of, um, 
some of the stuff that you were your experiences with with big publishers because I do want to talk about that. When you and I did an interview, I I think it was about a year ago. It was to promote only good Indians, I believe, huh. or it might have been promote my heart as a chainsaw. But yeah. one of the things that I asked you was about, um, uh, you know how your how your writing has changed. And one of the things that you said that I thought was really fascinating, I'd love for you to talk about it, is you talked about how when you started out you were scared. And you had this kind of thing where you talked about, like, you kind of wrote on one side of the canyon. I'm going by memory. You kind of wrote on one side of the canyon, and the and the reader was sort of on the other side of the canyon, and you were kind of expecting the reader to reach across to you. And then you kind of realized there came a, a point where you realized you had to sort of reach across to them. Can you talk a little bit about that theory, that feeling of when that happened to you? Yeah, like, well, I think when when I started out writing, and I see this in a lot of um, debut writers as well, not just novelists, just writers in general. Um, like you want to show off your big brain, you know, or what you think is your big brain. And, and you know, no surprise, you're not as smart as you think you are, of course, you know, I, right. I know I wasn't, I wasn't, but, um, but yeah, I would, I would try to hide and I'll, I would try to use a lot of like um, literary pyrotechnics to hide the fact that um, I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. I would try to come off smarter than I was. And, um, and yeah, the result of that is like, um, to think of it like a staircase, like, um, I don't know, let's say I'm at the top of the staircase and the readers at the bottom, I was like standing up there with my book and saying, come all the way up here and you can have this book. But that's not a very nice way to treat people. You know, I need to, as, as I've done book after book after book, I've realized you ha- I have to meet them in the middle, you know, mm-hmm. and to tell you the truth, uh, like a, um, a flat escalator, a moving sidewalk is probably a better model, you know, because I don't, I don't like the hierarchy of up and down, but right. And what I mean by meet the writer in the middle is, um, do the things in the genre that they expect you to do. That's what, that's why the conventions are there. It's like a contract between you and the reader. But, um, also I don't need to unnecessarily obfuscate just the simple facts of what's going on. Um, I remember, I remember a a philosophy professor telling me years and years ago, I was about 20 years old that, um, he, somehow had heard or knew or read that Heidegger would write, you know, a big, you know, philosophical treatise or whatever, give it to his little coterie of friends. And if they all got back to him and said, this was great, it's just totally clear. He would say, well, that sucks. So he would make it thicker and thicker and thicker until it was <laughs> impenetrable, you know? Right. And I think I, I probably was flirting with falling into that kind of trap in my early career, but um, luckily um, sales turned me the other way, I hope. Yeah. Well, there's that interesting thing where it's like, uh, Steve, Stephen King said famously, you know, you write your first draft with the door closed and you rewrite with the door open. What is your, first of all, what is your rewrite process? How how heavy are you? Because I know there's a Joe Lansdale model of like, I edit while I write. And then there's the my model, which is I just kind of vomit out the first draft and I, I rewrite the whole thing two or three times. And then there's people who I think are crazy who actually physically rewrite the entire book were, you know, yeah. like they open a new document and they rewrite the entire book word for word. But what's your kind of editing process or rewriting process? I remember hearing that Joe Hill does something like that to get it all down. Right. But, um, but yeah, I, this is probably similar to what Stephen King says, but, um, I think you write your first draft with your heart and then you revise with your mind. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think to me, thinking has no place in a first draft. Thinking is all about the feelings, the emotions. So yeah, like you, I think I just, um, get everything down on the page in a big splash, you know, and generally that happens really fast. Like Reaper took me 10 weeks, I guess, you know, it was, it was there and done. And then I go back and try to make it make sense. Every once in a while I get lucky and it comes out close to right the first time, but more often than not, uh, once I kind of apply um, thinking to it and try to 
figure out what this lever does. And when I pull this lever, what light comes on and, you know, all the little mechanical things that go on in a novel. Once I make myself think about that, I do have to often change a whole lot of things. And what I really love about revision though, is that like I can take a hundred thousand word novel. If I can figure out a way to cut 30,000 words out of that, that's the dream. You know, I love, I love, I love killing like 50 pages at a time. That makes me feel so good. Yeah. Which is sort of the antithesis of a lot of writers. Cause they want to, you know, they don't want to kill their babies or kill their darlings or whatever it is. But the, the thing I wanted to talk to you on that same note is like, so you have a very unique, and this kind of, I think plays into what you were saying. You have a very unique voice. You know, I think there are writers who, their voice really gets across in their writing. I'm thinking about guys like Laird Barron, who, you know, when you read a Laird Barron story, it feels very much like a Laird Barron story just because of the, the way he writes his prose. And and same with with you, you know, your books have a very uh, liquid kind of, you know, I don't know if that's a good way to describe, but it feels very liquid. It feels almost stream of consciousness when you're reading your work. And is that something that you... Um, have grown co- more confident in, or, or I guess to your point, you've always kind of written that way, but now you kind of, maybe you tend to take care to make sure that you're getting across whatever messages you're trying to get across to the reader, not making them work so hard. Yeah. Like I like to think of a novel, like a slip and slide, you know, if you can elicit the reader to take that first running step under the very first of that slip and slide, then it's, it's my duty to keep that water hose running. So they just crash through to the end 40 feet later, you know? And so right. I do try to um, polish things up. Not, not so much that they shot such that they shine. Cause I think that can be off putting to a reader, but like, you don't want every verb to be the best verb because then there's no emphasis when you need a good verb, you know, but I do like to polish things such that it's slick, such that if the reader, um, once they can just slide and slide and keep going. That, that, that's the dream. That, that's what I like when I read a book, you know? Right. And that's one thing that I've noticed having just for the first time in my career, you know, having had the, the pleasure of working with a big five publisher and, and, and having like the cop, you know, my first time ever getting like copy edits. One of the things that was interesting to me or somewhat frustrating to me was there's a lot of corrections and I don't write I don't think I think of a very different style than you. I, I write a little more, I think, by the numbers. But I, but there were a lot of things that they, they wanted me to correct and quote unquote. I'm putting that in quotes. And I was like, no, that's very purposeful. That's that's quote unquote art, right? With your writing, do you run? Do you find yourself running into that a lot with when you're going through the editing process with the publishers where they're correcting stuff that you don't want corrected? Oh man, that's always the battle. I mean, copy editors number one, they save my life. They keep me from looking like an idiot. Sure, of but I think also because they are kind of um, necessarily beholden to the proper rules that the result is often that the prose becomes flattened, if that makes sense, and kind of normal. Right. You know, like a friend of mine um, published a story in the in the New Yorker not long back, and I was reading in an interview, he was saying that um, when the story came back with copy edits from the New Yorker, it had so many more commas, you know, because they were slow, they were slowing it down and making it into a New Yorker story, which um, that would break my heart, you know. Um like the one thing that I probably resist the most in any copy editing situation is if anybody ever tries to put a semicolon in my mouth, which I love semicolons, don't get me wrong, but because I love them, I also guard myself against them because I can use a semicolon every dang sentence if I, if I want to, you know, because I think they're wonderful and elegant, but I don't let myself do that. I'll use semicolons very, very rarely, only when they're the only option, you know? Yeah. But the, my biggest um, fight with copy editors is always about... Um, you mean I have to capitalize Coke and Frisbee and styrofoam and dumpster and laundromat? I hate that stuff. I hate that so, so much. Right. You know, it's interesting. I was reading 
pet cemetery. And I was fascinated by how many semicolons Stephen King used in that book. And I don't think he does it as much anymore, but there was like a couple paragraphs where I, I was counting them. I think he had like 11 rocking in like one paragraph. And I was like, man, you could never get away with this now. That's funny because when he reviewed one of Joyce Carol Oates' novels, probably about three years ago, four years ago, he said, number one, this is a great novel. Number two, what's with all the semicolons? <laughs> you know? That's, yeah, that is. Someone sent me a, I was editing, um, I, I don't think he'd mind. Uh, you know, Tyler Jones is a new yeah. new writer, up and coming writer, great guy, good writer. And he, he sent me of something to look at. And I, one of the notes I told him was like, you got to keep an eye on your heads. You're killing me with your heads. Right. Uh And he, and then he was like, yeah. And he was like, you know, obviously like, yeah, thank you. It's a great note. And then he sent me like a week later, this, he had a cut and paste a paragraph from his, I don't remember which Stephen King novel it was, but it was a paragraph. And there must've been like 30 heads (laughs) in like 200 words of copy. And it was, it was awful. It was my, my skin was crawling, but, um, want to talk about writing some more, but I also want to talk about, because I, I think it's really interesting for, for writers to hear about publishing experience. And I, you and I spoke, at, we were at a con, I don't know, five, six years ago, and I, you just moved on from HarperCollins. Yeah. If you yeah. don't mind, can you talk a little bit about the experience of moving from one publisher to another? And, so, and just to kind of give, just to give uh, writers kind of an idea of what it's, what it's like when you're in that situation. Yeah, well, I, did, I went from um, William Morrow to... Not directly to Saga. I guess I kind of went via Tor.com with um, Mapping the Interior. But Morrow and, Morrow and me, we broke up. Morrow and I, I never know me or I. That, uh, I'm an English professor and a novelist. I should really know that, but I don't. Right. That's another fight I have every time with copy editors. And, uh, sometimes I insist on doing it wrong, and sometimes they beat me down to do it right. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't a situation where um, I had another offer so I said bye to William Morrow and yes to the other place that was asking me to dance. You know, it was the case that um, we kind of reached an impasse, me and me and William Morrow, and so we I checked out. I mean, we went our separate ways, and I didn't have anywhere else. And I wrote, let's see, two novels: one crime novel and one science thriller. And um, my agent wasn't having luck selling them. And then I accidentally wrote The Olympic Indians. I was trying to write a novella for Datlow and I I wrote two novels on accident. And then I accidentally wrote a third novel. And I was like, do I not even know how to write novellas anymore? It's just a word count. But anyways, um, so she was going around with The Olympic Indians and it was getting rejections. And she finally ran into Joe Monty at a conference and said my name. And he said, give me the manuscript. And he ran on the plane home and bought it. And it was wonderful. It's been so, so amazing working with um Joe Monty and Saga. It's it's weird when I you finally like find um the dance partner you should have had all along, if that makes sense, you know. And with William Morrow, I worked with Kelly O'Connor on on Mongrels, which was amazing. Kelly is amazing, but by the time um Mongrels came out, she was already on to I think she was a tour actually, or maybe Orbit. I don't know. She was she was somewhere else. Yeah, I think it was Orbit actually. And so I didn't have a champion anymore at William Morrow which is a big reason why I ended up going somewhere else. You want to have a champion wherever you are, but it was wonderful. It's like working with Saga has like, I didn't even, I didn't even know it was my dream. Like I I assumed I would always be a one hitter for the rest of my publication career. That I was going to do one book here, one book there, another book there, you know, I just going to amass a shelf like that, but I can see myself going, going the distance with Saga because they seem to, believe in what I do. And they um, sometimes let me win the copy editing arguments, you know? Yeah. And if there's anything that has come up, I think in almost every conversation I've had with, with a writer on this podcast, it's how many times they bring up 
the importance of a, of an editor because, and I, I mentioned this with uh, Christopher Golden, but I was, we were talking about like the importance of an editor because not only is the editor, are not only are you relying on them to help you, you know, take the manuscript across the finish line, but they also are, to your point, they're your champion in that publishing house, right? They're the ones who get the marketing and sales team guys, you know, on it. And a lot of, and I've, I just hear again and again, and it's, uh, and it's a learning lesson for me too, is how many times people, authors move on because their editor moved on. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. That, that that quite often happens. Um, yeah, like Joe Monty, like the only good Indians. It wouldn't have been the only good Indians had he not his not had his hand in it. Because used to the whole big first part of the only good Indians was in like a fake second person that then reveals itself to be dramatic monologue. He made me dial that dial that back. He said he appreciates the trick I'm doing, but it's not going to land with the readers. And I'm sure he was right. And he made me change the title too. And then with we got to chainsaw, and he made me change the title on that. What was I calling it back then? Lake Access Only. That's what it was called for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he also, like Joe doesn't make me do anything, but he tells me that it would be a lot better this way. And I, my initial response is always, oh, come on, I know this book. But um, I also have to remember that he's been doing this a long time. He's really smart and he's not trying to ruin my book. And I trust him as well, you know? And well, that's huge, yeah. Yeah, when he told me that um, the ending of Chainsaw, he didn't know what would work, but the way I was doing it was not working. I listened to him. And so I tried it a different way. And that different way turned out to be the, the way that both worked and opened it, opened it up to a trilogy. So I'm so thankful to have his input on my books. Yeah, th- that's that's amazing. I know Nathan Ballingroup publishes with, so- at least his last couple yep. books, I think were Saga as well. And I know he talks highly of them. Uh, my only, the only thing I know about Joe Monty is he's really hard to get He's really hard to get a response from him if you're if you're trying to sell a manuscript. But uh, but yeah, but the guys he cho- the people he works with are 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 amazing. So that's a, that's really interesting to hear. So the um I want to talk about writing because you teach it. You know, one of the things that I asked you in our interview was uh, I said, what's the one what's the one takeaway you want every writer to leave your classroom with? And I think you mentioned that that direct address commas aren't optional. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh. And I, I just, what are like, I don't, I, I, I obviously we can't put your entire syllabus into, you know, three minutes of, of chat, but what are like for, if you're, if you're, let's say you, you know, let's pre- pretend that we have, you know, a hundred writers listening, what are like two or three things that you want to, would want to make sure that you would emphasize to, to a new writer to make sure they, some do's, you know, some obvious bullet point do's and don'ts. That's good. And I think you've got well over a hundred listeners too, man. I think we've we got a lot of writers tuning into this, which is exciting, but, um, you know, the two pieces of advice that I always want to tell every writer, every student is number one, read outside your genre. Because like, I love horror. I don't read only horror. I read a lot of science fiction. I read a lot of science. I read memoir. I read random nonfiction books, I read comic books. And the, the, the deal is that um, staying in your home field is great. You got to know the plants that you live in, you know, the, the stuff that's around you, but step over that fence and go walk in other fields. And then when you come home, you're going to have burrs stuck to your pants leg and they'll fall off and become seeds. And that new DNA is exactly what a genre needs to stay vital. You know, I may learn something in a, in a book on plant pollen that um, I can use to great effect in horror, or I may learn something in a science fiction novel. And I love to, um, it's not that I love to hotwire things. I I mean, I do like to hotwire things, but I just like to um, keep horror vital. And the way I, I like to keep it vital is by smuggling in strange DNA, DNA. And the other piece of advice is to choose writing over everything but family and health because mm-hmm. without uh, some sort of, I say family, that can be your, that can be your friends, you know? Um, but if you don't have people around you and if you 
can't actually physically get to the keyboard, you're going to have a hard time, you know, getting books on the page. And it's funny because, man, probably 10 years ago, I used to have three things I would say in front of an audience. I'd say, choose writing over everything but family, health. And I don't know what that third thing was anymore. So it must not have been that important. <laughs> you know, maybe it was like vanilla Coke or something. I don't know. But, um, but it's so easy. The world wants us to watch reality TV, to go to the baseball game, to hang out at the bar, to do 50 other things, you know? And the trick is like, it's, it's like there's elastic bands tied all over your body and they're tied to all these different places in the world. And you've got to struggle and struggle to get to the keyboard, you know? And so the, the more of those elastic bands you can snip off, the quicker you can get to the keyboard. And yeah, you do end up, um, not being as social as you probably might want to be and you miss out on the big game or whatever it is, but getting words down on the page to me, that's what really matters. Yeah. I mean, two, two things in response to that. One is I, years ago, Laird Barron and I were chatting and he, he, uh, he brought up some poets that he reads that uh -huh. he's gleaned a lot from. And I, and, and I've, I had read poetry before, but I, you know, some of those, poets that he mentioned and I, and I've since kind of gotten hooked on a lot of different poets. And for me, reading poetry, man, it really opens up like what you can do with language and, yeah. and you get, and it, to your point, it's not so much about, um, Oh, I just read this beautiful phrase. I'm going to plagiarize it. It's or whatever. It's more about to your, it's like the burrs stick into the pants. It's like, it's, it's, it's in your subconscious, man. It's like, once you're, it's there, it's like when you're, cause writing is such a subconscious experience in general. So when you're flowing and you're just kind of letting the words go, it's like those things that you've read in the, in the past or, or you know, ideas that you've read about, or, or to your point, you know, weird factoids that you might've come across, those things will drop and naturally as you're writing. And that's, yeah. so that's why I think reading widely is important. It's not so much about, oh, I'm reading widely and you got to take a book of notes. It's just read it, man. And then yeah. when you're writing, it's going to, it's going to pop up when you least expect it. Yeah, you're right. You can't help it. You know, I've, I've run into people before. Um, students particularly, but people at cons as well, uh, they'll tell me they want to write this, they want to write that. And I'll say, well, who do you like? What do you read? And they'll say, I don't really like reading. And I, that just like melts my brain. I cannot even right. fathom that. I, I can't understand not reading. I, if I don't read, I feel like I'm just hollow inside, you know? Yeah. No, I need at least an hour a day reading something just to kind of keep myself sane. Um, I wanted to get your comics and movies, but maybe, maybe we'll have another opportunity in the future. But I'd always like to end these things, and I'm sure you have some great examples. I would love to ask you if there are you know, one or two books that you feel that are writing books that you would, that, you know, that are hardcore recommends for any new writer, stuff you got to have and read or have on your desk. You know, the, I've gotten a whole lot from Richard Hugo's book on writing poetry, Triggering Town. It all, it all applies to fiction, everything he says. It's a little book. It's like 75 pages maybe. But I read that book pretty regularly and I always feel like it lets me refine my center if that makes sense you know and of course Stephen King's on writing is one of the the best texts you can read um and you know Tim was just on here talking talking about um writing in the dark or writing the dark um you know there's an essay I go back to over and over again it's by a guy named David Jouse G-A-U-S-S it's called from long shots to x-rays it's about point of view and fiction it's about point of view and distance and angle in fiction that more than any other article on craft that I've read that has influenced my fiction. I, I think like I should like dedicate most of my books to him because that book made me understand fiction in a different way than I ever had. And that's just an essay you can find online. It's an article. Um, I don't know if it's online. I mean, I know it's online behind a paywall. I don't know if it's public, but it's, it's, it's gotta be out there somewhere. It's in it. He did a, a book on craft techniques and it's in okay. that book as well. I've got that book. I haven't read the other essays yet. Um, 
I, I feel like I'm still making sense of that long shots to x-rays. And once I have fully incorporated that into my DNA, then I can move on to his other insights. And then what about writers, like um, not necessarily, you know, writers that you think are, you know, necessarily entertaining, but what are some writers that you feel that you'd put out there that you feel like if, uh, if you want to expand the universe of your mind, these are a couple of writers that you, you, you know, uh, you know, people could check out. Yeah. You know, well, the first book that popped in my head when you said that was Brian Hodges, The Immaculate Void. You know, I think that book is so beautifully written and it's so engaging and thrilling. I just can't get enough of that book, The Immaculate Void. It's cause you know it's cosmic horror. Um, Gemma Files's experimental film blows me away every time I engage that book. I think it does everything a horror novel should do, and I'm quite jealous that I'm 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 quite thrilled I get to read it. I'm quite jealous that I probably will never write anything as good as that. You know? Yeah, I've heard that one come up a couple times, which is interesting. I obviously I'm a you know a fan of Gemma's, and I've I have it, but I have to get I have to get it I have to get it read. Well, listen, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here and taking the time. When is um when is the second book, The Reaper, which is the sequel to uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw? When is Reaper coming out? Uh, early February of 2023, maybe February 7th, I guess. And then Earth Divers, that comic book comes out. Well, I, don't, I can't say the date yet. It comes out before too long anyways. The, in 2022? Yeah, 2022. Yeah. Oh, there's your dog. Yeah, she's I'm glad he finally spoke up. She tired of me talking into this microphone. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, all right, dude. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. And everyone who's listening, thank you for being here. And we will uh, we will meet again next time on The Dark Word. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.